Well, good morning and happy Advent season to you all. I was planning having a one-week sabbatical from my labors over at Christ Church and coming to worship with you all. And probably more importantly, I was planning on the congregants from that church having a one-week sabbatical from having to hear me preach. But alas, we had a last-second reroute yesterday morning at about 9 a.m. So here I stand. But what a joyous time of the year in the Christian calendar to be able to come and bring God's word to you all. And this season, we celebrate the miracle beyond all miracles. We look forward to the miracle beyond all miracles. And this season, we celebrate joy and love, mercy and goodness being made flesh. For to us, a child will be born. To us, a son will be given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Praise be to God for that message, for that truth, for that certainty, for that strong and sure foundation. That's a message we need in this day and age. As the nations flail, as the world convulses, as society self-flagellates, as each generation proves the great Irish poet W.B. Yeats to be a prophet when he so famously penned that things fall apart, the center cannot hold, that mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, that the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. Seems that each generation is sort of in a rush to prove Yates to be correct. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The world descends further and further into madness as everything seems to be falling apart. And even in moments that seem like they might be pregnant with the seed, with the potentiality of a natural hope, even when there's those moments of spring that seem to break into the bleak midwinter, promising new life. Even in those moments, we with eyes to see, well, we can sympathize with the incomparable T.S. Eliot when he wrote and spoke of that so-called hope of spring. Eliot wrote, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire. Stirring dull roots with spring rain. You see, Eliot knew that those flowers of spring, those symbols of hope, well, they were fertilized by the decomposing soldiers and the civilians who were mowed down in the blood dim tide of World War I. You come up to Eliot and you say, Hey, Eliot, your tulips are so lovely. And he responds, Well, thank you. They're nourished by the rotting corpses of our ancestors. Nations seemingly do nothing but lift up sword against other nations. History is saturated with our practice of war. And as you might have noticed, the bigger the government, the larger the body count. It is into that world that we who mourn in lonely exile here, we celebrate that in this season, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders. 
And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This joyous morning, we'll not be looking at that particular lovely passage from Isaiah chapter 9, but we're going to jump back seven chapters earlier and contemplate the joy of this day and the joy of this season by looking at Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. And we're going to approach that text today under two headings. Two headings. The mountain of the judge and the judge of all the mountains. The mountain of the judge and the judge of all the mountains. So first, the mountain of the judge. Our text this morning reads, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. Isaiah likes to talk about mountains. There's a lot of mountains in that large Old Testament book of Isaiah. There's a lot of mountains in the Old Testament in general. And mountains, they played an important role in the religions that surrounded Israel. Israel's neighbors had sort of an obsession with mountains. And it plays an important role in Israel's history as well. Mountains were the points where heaven and earth were thought, thought to sort of coincide, to mix, to co-mingle. I mean, think back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel fiasco, where the people said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Throughout Israel's history, you'll notice that history, their history is uh, sort of intersected with neighbors who are obsessed with mountains. Mountains were the favored spot for houses of worship. I mean, the absolutely wicked, the abhorrent, the child-abusing, child-sacrificing Canaanites, they worshiped their gods in what they simply called as the high places, up there on a mountain. That's where we worship God. But in our passage... Isaiah, he prophesies to a time when it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Isaiah sees a time where one holy mountain will reign supreme. He sees ahead to a time that starts with what we celebrate here in this Christmas time. He looks ahead to a time that starts on Christmas morning. On Christmas morning, God planted the seed of life deep in the subterranean. He planted hope into a tiny cave in Bethlehem. It's the very descent of God that actually triggers this ascent to the tops of Zion. It's the descent of God that triggers the reascent to the Mount of Zion, the mountain of the Lord. On Christmas Day, we'll celebrate the beginning of that cosmic reversal. 
The movement from the cave to the mountaintop. The movement from the babe to the king. Isaiah, he prophesies that once the one mountain, and we might remember, after all, one of the names of God in the Old Testament is El Shaddai, the mountain one. But Isaiah prophesied to the time when there would be one mountain, the mountain of the Lord will be established high above all other competing mountains. And then all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come. And they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The one mountain is established and the nations flow to it. I love that language. They shall flow to it. You see, the nations here in Isaiah, they are not coerced. They're not dragged to it. But they're like Dante in paradise, compelled by the divine triunity. He lovingly flows towards the prime mover, towards the love that he says moves all worlds. That's Dante in paradise. He's not getting dragged there. He just flows into the divine triunity. And here, Isaiah says that the nations flow to the mountain of the Lord. If you're lucky enough to see your loved ones in this Christmas season, in this Advent season, if you're blessed enough to still have your parents or your grandparents, your children, your brothers or sisters, when you see them, you're not going to have to force yourself to go hug them. But you will be moved to them by the force of love itself. You'll flow to them. How I know my wife longs to hug her father. Taken from her. So abruptly by the blood-dimmed tide of a sin-soaked world. If this Christmas season, if I could see my, my grandpa Eddie or my grandma, you better believe there would be no need for compulsion. I would be drawn to them. I would flow to them Ever so quickly. Go listen to Brad McDuffie's eulogy of his uncle Tony. And you better believe when Karen and Ron, when Rebecca and Mike, when Brad and Rachel, when they see that man in glory, wild horses couldn't drag them away. And this is true for every one of us in this room. I mean, there might be a line formed from this congregation alone waiting to embrace Coach Spanger and Ed Weber. And the longer we live, what you're going to see is this congregation emptied out by the blood-dimmed tide of a sin-soaked world. I'm reminded here once again of T.S. Eliot, who starts off that great poem, The Wasteland. He actually starts it off with an epigraph, a quote from the Cumian Sibyl, the Sibyl of Cumai. And that Sibyl, she had wished for eternal life, and she was granted it. And you might think, well, that's pretty great. She wishes for eternal life and she gets it. But it turns out for her to be the horror beyond all horrors. As she forgot to also wish for eternal youth. So the Sybil ages forever. Eternally. Watching every last person she loves die. And she herself cries out at the beginning of Eliot's poem, wishing that she were dead. Isaiah sees a God. He sees a future where these problems are dealt with. He sees all the nations flowing to the mountain of the Lord 
almost compelled there. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The nations flow to the mountain because that's where the king is. And what then do the nations say as they come? They flow in love to the king's mountain. And what do they say? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The nations throng to the courts of the king because they're battle weary. They're willing to submit to his authority as they have already seen that living according to their rules, that hasn't worked out for them. It's created chaos. They want peace. They want stability. They want spring flowers that aren't fed by the decomposing flesh of their loved ones. Isaiah is clear here. There is none of this peace. There is none of this hope until the nation submits to this king. All other attempts at peace or routes to peace, they're purely illusory. The nations realize that they must be taught his ways. The ways of the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. On Christmas Day, you're going to celebrate with Isaiah that in the incarnation of God, that God in taking on human flesh has established himself as the mountain to which all the nations will be drawn. And they will be drawn there to learn his ways of peace. And that brings us to our second point, the judge of all the mountains, the judge of all the mountains. If you look at verse four of our text, it says, he shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So we see that God, he's set as judge of all the nations. And that sets up a dilemma for you and I. It sets up a dilemma for us. It sets up a dilemma because of our problem with wanting to be the judge of our own lives. It doesn't sit well with our sort of modern sufficiency and independence. We want to be masters of our own fate and captains of our own souls. But Isaiah tells us that God and God alone is the one who utters the final, definitive, and authoritative statement of the truth about the human condition. You see, part, part of the fallen condition, one of the results of the fall, is that we enthrone ourselves as judge. Right? We all commit the same sin as Adam every time we judge for ourselves. Every time we allow ourselves to decide what exactly is right and what is exactly wrong. Now, not only in our taking on the role of judge is that an act of treason, which it certainly is, robbing God of his rightful place. Not only that, but when you and I allow ourselves to judge, you know what happens? A lot of bad things happen because it turns out we're really bad at the job. 
We weren't created to be judges. It's not our telos. It's not our end. It's not our purpose. And so when we try to judge, we stink at it. When we judge, you know what happens? We see massive logs in everyone else's eyes. They are the great source of evil. They are the great problem. And the problem for that is, well, we fail to see the massive logs in our own eyes. To enthrone yourself as judge. To judge people by your own myopic, short-sighted, self-interested standards. It's an attempt to populate the world in your own image. It's to take on the role of being the chief creator. And that means that those not made in my image, those that don't conform to my rules... Well, they're in my way. And oftentimes, people that are in our ways, they get cleared out with swords and spears. But Isaiah, he prophesies ahead to a time when the babe born on Christmas Day shall judge between the nations. And he, the text says, shall settle disputes. How lovely is the picture of a God who settles disputes, who puts them to rest, The picture of a God who looks at enmity and he forges friendship, brotherhood. Athanasius, he says of this text that Christ joins together in peace those who once hated each other. Tertullian, the great second century church father, he writes of this passage, minds that once were fierce and cruel are changed by the gospel and the word of the apostles into good dispositions, productive of good fruit. When we allow God to be our judge, that is accompanied by a cosmic reordering of things. Flowing by love to the mountain of the Lord and learning his ways leads to us beating our swords into plowshares. It leads to us beating our spears into pruning hooks. It leads to a time when nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I mean, that's got to be one of the most heartening verses in all of Scripture. But we can't be expected to actually believe that, can we? That is utopian, futuristic nonsense. You expect me to believe that we are going to see nations beat their weapons, their swords, and their shields into plows and pruning hooks? If any of you believe that, you can see me after church because I got a nice bridge for sale. Great price. There's a modern song that I find to be about as beautiful as anything I've ever heard. From the moment that I first heard it, it sort of hit me right in my soul. It captured my imagination with its very simplistic beauty. And it's actually the inspiration for this particular sermon. I heard the song... And my interior just sort of reverberated with Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. The artist doesn't even know it, and he just wrote a song about Isaiah 2. The song is called Cavalry, and it's written from the perspective of a horse. I know that sounds strange, a song written from the perspective of the horse. Here's a sample of some of the lyrics. From the age of kings, when pride decided all fate... Long before war machines took charge, and I was still awake, it was blind hope and blinders with young men to carry between. 
all the death and the glory, believing they're one and the same. Now I'm saving my strength for running. These days, I'm saving my strength for running. Yes, I've carried the world on my back with no more to obtain. The sword and the shield perched upon saddles and reins. But the stampedes of thunder, the cavalry's charge leaves me now. Your last war will come, but I cannot follow you down. No, I'm saving my strength for running. These days, I'm saving my strength for running. I said, these days, I'm saving my strength for running. You see, this horse, he's seen battles. He's seen nations judging each other. He's carried young men between the death and the glory, believing they're one and the same. Ah, to die in battle. What glorious victory. What a glorious way to go. But something's happened. He no longer lives that way. He no longer wastes his strength and energy fighting wars. These days, he's saving his strength for running. He's been transfigured from a shield and a sword, from a tool of war to a creature of peace. And now he does what he was actually meant to do, to freely run. It's a really lovely image, as is the entire prophecy of Isaiah found here in Isaiah chapter 2. A day when weapons of war are transformed into tools for cultivation, tools that build up rather than tear down. Well, beloved, let me tell you, when you look around, and particularly when you look around at the text of Scripture, it's painfully easy to see which shields and swords need to be beaten into plows and pruning hooks first. And unfortunately, it's probably not what we want to hear. But you and I, beloved, we are shields and swords. We are tools of war. But we were not meant to be. We were made for something else. You were made to save your strength for running. This prophecy of a peaceful future, it's already here. It's already available. Not fully, but certainly in part. In one very real sense, this seemingly future reality has already come. Because God has already judged He weighed and he counted all the nations and he found them to be wanting. But his love for them was so great that he himself became man. And in Jerusalem, God judged the nations by slitting his son's throat. It is this incarnate one on that cross that takes all the weapons of sin and death, evil and envy... And he beats them into plowshares and pruning hooks. Tools to be used in his re-established garden. It is the God who became flesh that you and I are spiritually united to. That's the God we're united to. And we can now resist evil because Jesus has resisted and prevailed. When we come to his mountain, which we are called to do week after week after week. When we come to his mountain... When we flow to love, in love, to Christ, when we listen to his teachings, he can and will turn us from spears and swords into tools for agricultural growth if we would have the ears to hear and the eyes to see.
Stop being used in the service of war, in the service of evil, in the service of destruction, in the service of division. Because Christmas is a story of God running after those who abandoned his house and were aimlessly wasting their lives being used as spears and shields. But on Christmas, God in the person of Jesus, he ran after you so that you can spend your life, you can save your strength for running. As 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, run towards righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. God took hold of human life by being born on Christmas Day so that you may take hold of life eternal where you will run. You will have more than enough strength saved to run to your loved ones who died in Christ. And most importantly, you will run into the very presence of the face of God. Emmanuel has come. God with us so that we might be with God. Amen.